First time you buy a house, nobody tells you how much junk you really need. It's just stuff that you have to accumulate over time because some stuff nobody gives you for housewarming gifts or for a shower. And one day after we had moved into our first home that Megan and I had together, I realized that I had a bunch of boxes that I needed to move and I needed a hand truck. You know, one of those metal things you stack boxes on and I didn't have one of those because we hadn't collected one yet, but my neighbor did. And they were like the grandparent type, so we could borrow anything from them. So I went next door to see if I could borrow his hand truck. And he said, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to let you use the hand truck, but it's really old and it's on its last legs and it might break. And I'm like, it's better than one that I got, which is nothing. So I took it over and I was able to get my boxes moved. And sure enough, when I when I was moving some of the boxes, it broke. Not like terribly broken, not like not usable, but definitely broken. And I had to stop and think for a while because I was raised that if you borrow something from somebody, you return it in at least as good a condition as it was when you got it or better. And I'm like, should I just go out and buy him a new hand truck? Which, you know, was a little bit painful because I thought, you know, I could have bought one for myself. But he's like, no, no, he said it was gonna break, it's fine. So I take it back over and he comes uh, out to the garage and I'm like, well, I used it, thank you very much, but you're, you're right, it broke. And he looked at me and he went, and you're gonna return it broken? I'm like, wait, wait, you told me it was gonna break. You didn't wanna loan it to me. I'm like, well, I, I'd be happy to buy you a new one. I, I thought about that. And he was like, no, no, don't worry about it. I was like, oh, that I will never make that mistake again. Anytime I have or use something that belongs to somebody else, I'm gonna take really good care of it. Taking care of, taking good care of what doesn't belong to us but what we get to use is really at the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, specifically the use we get of this good creation of God's. And I want us to think biblically about this. And I think as Jesus followers, that's really important because there are so many different sources of information that barrage us daily. Our culture is so loud. As the people of God, we've got to make sure we're listening to the right voices and it's a learned skill. It's something that you have to develop. You have to figure out who the voices are that are important and who the voices are that aren't important, even if they're louder. And since we're people of the book, we believe that God's word is important. It's what we wanna base our life on. But we've gotta immerse ourselves in it. We've gotta spend time studying it and digging into it so that we begin to think and act in ways that are in line with our faith, that are in line with biblical thinking, that would please God and that would lead us to a fuller life for us and for the people around us. And we have to be doubly sure in this time, I believe, to make sure that our biblical view informs our opinions and our politics, not the other way around. We get in trouble when our politics inform our biblical view or our long-held opinions inform our biblical view. It is not the same thing. To start, I think one of the biggest challenges to thinking about our relationship to God's creation is misreading of biblical texts, two in particular, one from Genesis and one at the other end of the Bible from Revelation. Uh, the misreading of the Genesis text is this idea that we have dominion over creation in the sense that it's ours to use any way we want to, however it pleases us. And the misreading from Revelation 
is that it's all going to burn in some nuclear holocaust. And so what happens to it doesn't really matter. It's okay to bring the hand truck back broken because it's all going to burn. And I think both of those are real misreadings of the text, which lead us to a place that I'm not really sure is a biblical view of creation. We're going to get back to those texts in a bit, and we're going to look a lot today. We're pretty much going to go from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, but we're going to start in the book of Romans, in chapter 8 specifically. But I want to tell you my Romans 8 story first, about how we got to this. So a number of years ago, I don't know, maybe 10 years or something, I heard a story about Chinese Christians. And, you know, the church in China, if not persecuted, is, you know, tolerated, maybe at best. And lots of Chinese believers have no access to the Bible. And so when they get one, they share it, they rip it, they send pieces to other people. And apparently what a lot of people do is whenever they can get their hands on a Bible, they memorize a portion of it so that they always have the Bible that they can share with somebody else. And so I thought, well, I've just gotten lazy. You know, I probably have 40 Bibles. And so I want to do that. I want to memorize a really significant portion of the Bible so that I will always have that to share with people if I don't have a Bible. And so I decided that I would memorize Romans chapter 8. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What can separate us from the love of God? I mean, these soaring passages of Paul. And then I got to this middle section. I was like, wait, what? And it's that, wait, what? that I want to deal with this morning. So Romans chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's something really powerful that's going on here in this language. Now, there's lots of anthropomorphic language in the Bible. The trees of the field will, chat, will clap their hands. The rocks will cry out. The mountains will skip. And, and we know that's kind of poetic license, but this language feels different. There's something different here. It's not talking about you know, trees clapping, but it's talking about the whole creation waiting to be restored. The promise of recreation of the creation, renewal of the creation through what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what's pretty stunning. We're not used to thinking like that. We're used to thinking that God's plan of salvation is for people. But then Paul introduces this idea that the creation is waiting to be renewed and recreated too. It's not just for us, it's for everything, including the creation. And one of the last verses in the Bible, Revelation 21.5, God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things 
not just people. It's kind of like when you, know, you, you see a green Volkswagen and then you see them all over the place. Once you begin to look at how God really views creation, it pops up all over the place. I've heard that verse, behold, I'm making all things new a million times, but I never really thought that it meant all things. So in Romans 8, what Paul is dealing with here is the Genesis narrative, the creation account. And most Genesis scholars believe that the creation account, which is chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Genesis, that the creation narratives are a description of God creating a temple for himself to be worshipped in. So the universe, the, the earth, everything in it is created as God's temple. And that's why they say that when it comes to the seventh day God rested, it's not that God got tired, it's the idea that God sat down on the throne ready to be worshipped because the work of creating the temple was done. So God creates a temple for himself out of creation. This is where God dwells and he puts Adam and Eve in it and they're created to take care of it and to worship God in this perfect context. But then chapter 3 of Genesis comes in and sin enters into the world and everything breaks, including creation. And immediately, God begins the process of fixing it all through what Jesus has done on the cross in the empty tomb, including fixing creation. Paul's talking about God undoing the effects of Adam's fall and putting it all back together again the way it was supposed to be, and creation is a part of that. So let's look at what Paul brings out. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Creation waits. It's the tiptoe leaning forward. Is it time to open Christmas presents yet verb? It's that action verb that is expecting, not pipe dreaming, that is expecting that it will be fulfilled. It's this promised hope. And creation has that yearning, leaning into the future, waiting for the day. It's quite picturesque. Waiting for the children of God to be revealed because when the children of God are revealed, everything in creation will change too. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Creation was subjected to frustration. Creation bears part of the curse too. Creation is cursed along with people and snakes and it's, it's where weeds come from. It, it's part of the curse and if you have a yard, you know that that is definitely a curse. And so it, its purpose has been frustrated. Instead of providing the background for the worship of God, it is broken and growing weeds instead. It has literally become derelict. But it has this hope that it will be liberated, and look at this language, that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's death language. So the creation dies, it decays, but its hope is that it will move forward and go back to a place where the creation doesn't die either. In other words, resurrection power changes people, but it also changes the creation. It changes everything. And then creation will be brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. 
This is really interesting language to me. Uh, freedom and glory of the children of God. Freedom, you know, being set free from the effects of sin, from the, the power of death and evil, all of those things being broken in our lives and being free to be the way that God originally crea created us to be. Uh, to experience the glory of God present among us in the glory of the original creation, the glory of living in God's temple. But that doesn't happen just to us. Creation shares with it also. Creation is brought into it. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Again, super graphic and, uh, and picturesque language. Creation is not just groaning. Creation isn't just learning. It's, just, it's not just on tiptoes leaning forward. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And what Paul is talking about here is not the pain of childbirth, although I understand that that's real. The worst it got to me was just my hand being crushed, but I didn't complain about that. Uh, but it's the idea of the agony of childbirth produces something. And that's what creation is in agony for, because something is being produced. And what it's producing is this new order. Now, nothing weird like a new age or some totalitarian Orwellian nightmare. That's, that's not what we're talking about at all. Think of it like this. Every week, and this, this week, if you're online, at communion, I hold up the communion cup and I say, this cup is the new covenant, the new way of doing things. It's that language. Creation is yearning to have the new way of doing things, God's righteous rule reinstated. That's what is being produced in the world because of what God is doing. And so it is straining until it comes. And we strain and we long for it to come too. We strain and we long for the day when there's no more cancer. We long for the day where there is no more debilitating disease and no more hate and no more sin. We long for that new thing that God is doing to be born in us. When the children of God are revealed, when we get the fullness of the Spirit, not just the first fruits, when we're fully adopted as the children of God, where everything is redeemed, where God returns to His temple, and everything is set right. That's what we yearn for, and that's what creation yearns for also. History begins, and history also ends, in a garden. The Garden of Eden is obvious. The one at the end is not quite so obvious because you could miss it. Because it talks in the book of Revelation at the very end of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. So that already counters some of the misreading where, you know, it, everything is destroyed by nuclear annihilation, we go to heaven. The new Jerusalem comes down um, from heaven into the, onto the earth, but right smack dab in the middle of the city is a garden. There is an orchard where the trees will heal the nations, and through it there is a river that runs that nourishes everything. It starts and ends in a garden. And that's part of the misreading of Genesis 1.26 when it says that we're supposed to, humans are supposed to rule over the earth and to subdue it. 
The language is couched in the fact that we are made in the image of God. So we are to do the things that God would do. We are to act how God would act. We're to represent God in the ruling over the earth, to care for the creation as God would care for it. We are stewards of God's garden. We're supposed to be the gardeners of God's garden, the caretakers of God's temple. We are working on behalf of God when it comes to his creation. And so it's a misreading of Genesis where it just says, all of this is here for us to do whatever we want to. We can use it creatively, we can enjoy it, or we can destroy it. It really doesn't matter because we're supposed to have dominion. That's a misreading of what dominion is. Caretaking is, or being a steward, is a much better reading of it because the creation belongs to God and God is renewing all of it. The misreading of Revelation is what I mentioned a moment ago. It's this idea that we leave the earth, we go to heaven, we sit on clouds, we play our harps, and everything on earth is destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. But God is fixing his original plan. God's not moving on to plan B. So heaven comes back to earth and we end up in the garden again. So reading those two texts is really important to biblical thinking about creation. But I also want to do a quick tour of some of the other texts that I think are important if we're going to think biblically about God's creation and our responsibility. Some of them are familiar, but you may hear some things you never thought were in there, like I did with Romans 8 or with Revelation 21. Jonah, the very last verse, Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, God says, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Psalm 50, verse 10, God says, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. Proverbs 12, 10, The righteous care for the needs of their animals. In Genesis 9, 8, with the flood, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. God makes the covenant with them too. And pick a psalm. I mean, if you just open the book of Psalms, it talks about the glory of God in creation. But think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The whole earth shows the work of his hands. In Romans chapter 1, earlier in the book we've been in, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, you should be able to infer God from looking at the creation. It's that important. And then Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He doesn't just say people. He says all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So I'm not equating people with animals or anything like that. I'm just saying that sometimes we forget that God's concern is beyond us, 
that God is redeeming the entire world that he made, every soul and every inch of creation, bringing us back to the garden, bringing us back to the temple that Revelation tells us God will come and inhabit again himself. God cares about everything that he's created. And in a place like this where we live, it's easy to see why. We live in a place of incredible natural beauty. Uh, I'm an angler, I'm a fisherman, and I'm a trail runner. I love to camp, I love to hike, I love to be out on the water. I love to sit outside on a nice day and have dinner. And many of you enjoy those things too. We enjoy this place as God intended us to, but we also have a responsibility for it. Biblically, we're the gardeners here. Biblically, we are God's representatives. Biblically, we are supposed to now and in the future worship him in the context of the temple of his creation. So what should we do? Well, I'm going to leave that up to you, but we should do something. It might be just changing your mind about how, would you, how you would like to return the portion of creation that you have influence over to God. You might want to return the hand truck in better condition. You might want to get involved in a project or a movement. You might want to take care of a stretch of the road. You might want to recycle more carefully than you do. You might find some way that you can help be a more responsible gardener in response to what we've learned from the biblical text today. So let me ask you three questions. What aspect of creation speaks to you most about who God is? Number two, why do you think God cares about anything besides people? And number three, what is one thing you can do this week to be a good steward?